Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Today we're here with an HCSC grad who's the director of the movie The War on Kids, which was a documentary that came out a few years ago, and he just recently came out with a new book, The Student Resistance Handbook. Kevin, welcome back to HCSC, your alma mater. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show again. So, Kevin... Your first time you were on the show, you talked about the war on kids, and that brought about an interesting conversation about this institution of schooling. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, I think your opinion was it wasn't the greatest thing for, for students. That's an understatement. <laughs> and now you've come out with a book that seems to be geared towards the students, the Student Resistance Handbook. It's a book for students, even the way it's framed, uh, it's illustrated, it, it, it's written for students. I think our listeners would like to know what is the resistance the student resistance handbook what are they resisting against what should students not like uh the fundamental uh object of resistance is is the compulsory education environment it's it's the school uh the handbook is designed to give students the the tools to take down their school uh to interfere with its operation uh, to um, target uh, those who support the schools, including uh, not just the teachers and faculty, uh, but also uh, any of the support systems, uh, the people who supply the, the food, the, any of the other services, the architects, anyone who uh, helps support this, this institution um, you know, is, is subject to, um, uh, to, to, to the students as far as their, you know, their objections. And this to me seems like a message you'd want to base towards policymakers, towards governments. And instead, maybe you've gone that route, but this one, this message is geared directly towards the students, any particular ages that this book is geared towards. And how do you expect these students who are part of an institution to read this, and are they supposed to have an aha moment? Well, it's it's written for an intelligent audience, and it's written you know directly to to students, and it's only written for ones that uh, are trying to grapple with and understand and appreciate uh, why they are so miserable in their environment. Uh, there are a number of people who, uh, I mean, most students or, or many, if uh, I would say most, uh, do not enjoy being in school, and it's it's there's actually quite good reasons for it. Uh, schools are an impressive environment, and they fundamentally fail at every single mission that they claim to propose uh, to endorse. Um, the whole mission of school itself is something that, that is uh, ill-conceived and, and undefined. It's the, the best attempts that people have made to describe what schools could be for are either that it's supposed to help with uh, employment in some capacity, that there's a work component, that it uh, promotes citizenship, uh, or that it promotes literacy. Those are the, the three fundamental reasons. And Do you, it, do you think that it doesn't do that? It, it not only doesn't, each of those missions are actually incompatible with one another. Um, if you wanted a, an environment that is designed to uh, give work skills, promote work skills. You you would create a uh, some form of apprenticeship, and and yeah, there are um, there are schools designed for that, but that's not the compulsory uh, school environment. You know, uh, to do that. As far as literacy, we know that schools fail miserably at that, and everything, every single attempt to adjust and tweak uh, the curriculum has been designed to uh, deal with this fact. I think it, I think our listeners would probably want to have that supported by some facts. You, you sure. look at the testing well, here, if people I, can read. Well, yeah, well, the Department of Education has its own uh, set of statistics, and uh, the highest uh, level 
is is proficiency uh, in in their grading. And this was, I think, 2006. This report came out. Only 13 percent of Americans were in the proficient category. And yes, again, I, I can see that that is the highest level, which means that they are able to engage in critical thought with the text that they're able to to read. Um, but you'd think that when you go through 12 years of uh, being subjected to an institution five days a week, uh, 10 months out of the year, seven hours a day, uh, that more than 13% should be proficient. Uh, and it's, it's actually one of the, the few issues that where there is bipartisan acknowledgement, you know, both Democrats and Republicans, left and right, whatever, acknowledge that the school system is broken, uh, whatever that means. Um, the um, and then the last is is democratic citizenry, which is uh, that somehow where the schools make good citizens and they 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 don't and and this there's Erwin uh, Staub did some research about showing how schools actually. Uh, impact uh, capacity for empathy, that empathy becomes subordinate to discipline, to obedience to authority, takes priority over that. Uh, but not just that. The, the very fact is that, that schooling or compulsory education, our schools are fascist environments, literally fascist environments. I mean, fascism is, is suppression of all dissent and demand for loyalty. And in school, there is suppression of all dissent. And this is kind of where the handbook comes in, is, is trying to find ways within those small cracks where, where students can actually engage in the democratic processes and become actual citizens that we would hope and want our, our, our children uh, to, to learn and become. There's, there's nothing more valuable or important than, than learning how to uh, engage with and resist tyrannical oppression, and schools are tyrannical environments. So you say schools in general, and I'm just going to present the counterpoint of the school that maybe has some of the qualities that you talk about, schools that are ineffective or broken, and then there are schools that in many ways, and you can see this through many examples across the country, some high-performing charter schools, some Montessori schools, some arts-based schools that are taking students, they're shaping them as citizens, they're teaching them how to read, they're teaching them a, a craft or a trade or a musical instrument, and those students are becoming happy and uh, productive members of society. I, I have a feeling many of those students would probably say, I'm thankful for school. In fact, uh, here at the Harvard Ed School, we have many folks who say it is because of education that I am who I am today. And they would probably not say schooling is as bad or as awful or as failed as you say it is right now. Uh, what's the counterpoint? Uh, there are multiple counterpoints to that. One is uh, that there's conditioning. People are conditioned to think that they're okay. That's just how the human brain is wired. Uh, as far as enjoying school, I can find many prisoners uh, who, who will profess that they enjoy being in prison. Uh, the liking of something isn't, isn't sufficient. Again, uh, when you look at like the statistics of the Centers for Disease Control, you, we know that one out of 12 students attempts suicide and one out of six has seriously contemplated it. So you, you don't really have the, this happy environment, and you, you just have people who are uh, conditioned into thinking that. Um, if you, you can find anecdotal evidence of, of, of success, John McCain, for instance, uh, went off to become senator after spending seven years in, in, a, in a prison camp, uh, North Vietnamese prison camp. Does that mean we should send all of our kids to, to prison camp? Because you know he was able to use the success from that experience to, uh, to, to excel later in life. 
Um, so, you know, and, and one has to really, it's, it, it, you can't deal with anecdotal, uh, you know, situations. Some people win the lottery. Some people are successful uh, that way. But as far as attributing it to school, uh, where, where's the evidence? There's actually never been a study showing that the efficacy of school. School is, by definition, an intervention. It's, it's an experiment that was never tested against a null hypothesis. There's, there's no time where, where anyone ever said, well, let's put some students in the compulsory school environment and let's have others not, and let's see how the ones who are not do compared with, with uh, this, you know, with, with a randomized sample. So every single study that's ever even been done on schools is at best internally valid. It's, it, it, there is, you know, you cannot say that school is, is that any of the, the studies that have been done on schooling are even scientific, again, beyond their internal validity. Kevin, Kevin, let's accept all of what you're saying to be something that uh, is what a student who's reading the student resistance handbook believes in, and they resist, and they come up with all sorts of reasons to not go to school. Um, is this, A, something that's feasible for a student to say, hey, you know what, I'm 12 years old, I don't think I want to be in school anymore. How is that even part of this system possible? And then B, what happens with the student now? I mean, as an institution, as a country, as a society, if we do eliminate schools, as you're proposing, where do they go? What do they do? How do they continue to learn within the context that we're in now? Um, well, there's a few questions that are raised there. First, you know, it, it's it's driving home this appreciation, understanding that schools uh, feed and foster and breed a fundamental disrespect and distrust and resentment of youth. Um, there was an article recently about the Common Core in, in the uh, the Ed School thing, and uh, Har Harvard Ed Magazine. Harvard Ed Magazine. Pick up your copy today. And, and the article was, was largely excellent except for one glaring omission. All right, our editor's listening, so go for it. So the author uh, addressed all of the different positions that people have quite, quite expertly, but they never bothered to interview students. There's, there's no, the, 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 the very population that Common Core is designed to somehow influence was, was never considered to be a, a worthy of, of having an opinion that was valid on this subject. And, and that's a fundamental contempt, and that's bred from, from schools. Um, things, things like corporal punishment is, is legal in 19 states. And, and when it's discussed in articles, it's, it's discussed as, oh, this is a contentious issue, as, as if the, there's a side that could ha raise some valid points. If you could, you could imagine someone raising the issue of wife beating and saying, well, he raises some good points about wife beating, and, and corporal punishment is, is, is that despicable. But, but those kinds of things are, are permissible when we talk about youth. Um, the, uh, the, the youth... Uh, um, their behavior has become pathologized and criminalized routinely. If you look at the number of kids that are being drugged and, and arrested in schools, it, it's, it's a horrible, horrible place, and, and it breeds this, this, this hatred. So the resistance is basically uh, designed to get the adult population in a position where 
they are forced to relinquish some of the power that they have, and the power they have over kids is absolute. And and the fact that the, and and teachers and and administrators will routinely lie about this, and they'll say, oh, they they you know the kids you know control the situation, and, and that's you know just just a blatant lie. Uh, it's it's just you know the, the, that they have to. Uh, engage in, in, you know, increasingly more oppressive measures to control a population that is literally held captive. Kevin, what is your ideal world then? If this is, and, and, and we can talk about things theoretically. Sure. And we can talk well, about things that in actuality are, are doable within one's lifetime. So ideal stage, ideal, you know, visions, you know, happen in stages. And it happens first with a moral awakening. And the moral awakening that took place in, in you know, the 1800s was this appreciation and realization, you know, that, that slavery is, is, is a fundamental evil. And uh, lo and behold, you have 12 million, a population of roughly 12 million slaves who uh, there, there's talk of, of liberating. Uh, and the question that could have been raised, and I'm sure probably was raised, what do we do with these 12 million people? You know, we can't abolish slavery because we'll have 12 million people that we don't know how to integrate into society. And then there are all the repercussions for this so as far as reparations and how do, you, how, how do you deal with this. But no, the moral response is you do the right thing first. Slavery is an evil institution. We cannot condone it. And society, you know, 150 years later, still it has a long way to go as far as dealing with, you know, the consequences of having this institution, but strides are continuously being made. And the same needs to happen with compulsory schooling. We need to have this awakening where we realize, you know, this is terrible. This is a horrible thing that we're doing to our kids. And we need to find better ways to educate them. We need to develop our, our communities so that there are educational resources, and we need to do this in a way where adults become mentors as opposed to teachers, where there isn't a process of grading, where students have the capacity to pursue things that interest them, where learning is self-directed, and this is respected and uh, contributed and helped by people around them who can introduce them to new ideas and where kids can gravitate toward things. And we see already from, there's plenty of studies and examples with the unschooling world and democratic schooling. Different kids need different degrees of support. I'm not saying that everyone's the same and there's one size fits all, whereas compulsory schooling is not only a one size fits all, but it's it's broken down by, by age. At age 13, you have to be doing algebra or calculus or trig or whatever it is. You know, that's what you do at 13. And that's just sort of kind of absurd. Um, different people develop differently and need different support and have different interests. So within the, the school system writ large, where, where do you, Kevin, see points that you'd like to see expanded? Where do you see hope for the models and the ideals that you're sort of talking about here? There's actually tremendous hope right now. This is actually, you know, the, the beginning, the dawn of a golden era because of the online revolution. Uh, kids who have access to the internet can now, uh, in the remotest parts of, of rural areas, can access classes from MIT and Harvard online and learn about things that they're interested. And I'm not saying that all learning should be passive. That's one of you know my objections to compulsory education. But they can take some of that information that they learn there, share it with their peers, learn from other kids who are slightly older or younger than them, which again, you don't have right now where, where everyone is, is segregated by age. 
uh, and and, we, and, and uh, um, uh, there was experiments that were done in India in, in these rural, you know, incredibly impoverished area. And I'll, I'll butcher the experimenter's name if I try to pronounce it. Um, Mitra was his, his last name. But uh, uh, where, where he showed how, you know, th- this very process where, where a computer placed in, in a neighborhood and, and the kids learning from it and sharing information with one another. So, so the online is one way that uh, we've opened the world and... And, you know, information that, you know, was held up in these elite Ivy League, uh, Ivy Tower, you know, Ivory Tower type places as, as far as access. So it's it's becoming more available and more open. Uh, but it's, you know, we need to go much further in terms of developing communities. And schools have become a proxy for the community. Uh, parents uh, abdicate their, their parental responsibilities and, and the responsibilities to their neighbors uh, by assuming that schools will, will, will handle the discipline and, and control and oversight for their kids. I think um, people clearly know your stance on schooling. Uh, do you think the government should treat education, not schooling, education as a public good? Yes, education is a public good, absolutely. Schooling and education are not the same in the government. Uh, I, I do believe that that communities should be taxed and should uh, to support uh, education for the community, that there needs to be resources devoted to educating uh, people. So I think some people might argue that resources devoted towards educating people in a community paid for by tax dollars, put all that together, that kind of in some ways is what a school does. That is one thing that a school does in terms of it takes, you know, it takes money, but just just because it takes money and it's government sponsored doesn't mean that it's that it's a public good. Uh, schooling and education aren't the same thing. Schooling is an oppressive institution. Education, a museum with docents and you know that you know and and librarians, you know, they guide people who are interested in in knowledge. They follow their leads. Oh, you're interested in in this subject? Let me show you some books, and I happen to know of some books in that field. I can direct you towards, you know, go on and read and study and explore. You know, that happens in other fields. That's, you know, that's a learning process and environment. Libraries are, are, are government-supported educational resources that I wholly support. So at scale, with limited resources, with limited tax dollars in various communities across the country, um, do you think it's realistic that each student would get everything that they need in this very individualized learning and teaching approach that doesn't exist in the context of schools that you're talking about? Yeah, it's all a process. And uh, I think it people's needs would be much better served without schools that decide what people's needs are and decide quite poorly what people's needs are. Uh, the, the, the needs are debated and decided by, you know, from, from a, you know, a curriculum, and the curriculum is, is wholly arbitrary, and the curriculum is also gutted of anything that's potentially controversial. So you'll have you know history classes and things, any anything that's that's uh, you know because they don't want it, the the community to be in an uproar over what's being taught in schools. So a student uh, reads the student resistance handbook. What's what's a good next step for for schooling? Not not to say that you have schooling and then all schools are eliminated and what you're proposing exists, but what's that sort of 
progress and process, the evolution of this idea that you're putting forth? What would be a good next step? Because some people might argue and say, you know what, schooling is too broad. Let's figure out ways to make it a little bit more individualized. And then you have, you see MOOCs, you see hybrid learning, you see online high schools, you see arts-based education, you see all trade-based education. So you kind of see it going in the direction that you are talking about, but still all in the context of schooling. Um, all those things can be great, you know, as long as you take away the power component. You take away and you make it, you know, where the, the student is able to direct their, their learning. And those are all fine. You know, different people have different needs and different interests. And, and like I said, require different kinds of structures. And those kinds of things should be supported and advocated. I'm totally for youth empowerment. Totally for. I, I wonder if people might argue that, say, a seven-year-old might not know how to direct their learning. And that, that power component, that with age comes wisdom, with expertise comes this sense of understanding the developmental cognitive uh, processes of young folks, what they can learn, what they can comprehend, and what's necessary in, in this society that, like it or not, we exist in. Yeah, I mean, different ages require increased uh, support in different ways, and, and the parents are certainly involved in that process of, of, of helping guide and understanding and knowing what, you know, what their, their child needs and wants uh, and, and should listen. Um, so, yeah, there, there certainly would be a need for, for greater structure. But, um, you know, I, I do remember, you know, I remember in first grade, there'd be kids who were just absolutely fascinated with horses and others who were fascinated with, with dinosaurs. And, and that was, you know, those were seemed to be two of the gender <laughs> breakdown, uh, you know, they, as far as general, generalities go. But, um, but the, uh, you know, the vocabulary and their capacity to, to speak and understand things exceeded many adults as far as what they knew of the genus and species of dinosaurs and, and things about horses. And, and they can be brought to and engaged and taken to stables and, and actively learn and participate and, and through that process. And yeah, these, these require some restructuring of society to enable that kind of, you know, supervision so that the kids can get access to that. But um, there, there's a whole other population, too, that's, that's being underserved, and that's the elderly, who uh, are, are also taken away, isolated, uh, segregated from society, much the way you know, young kids are, uh, who would be more than happy to share their wisdom, knowledge, oversight, and, and engage with and, and provide supervision for, for children. So it, it, it is, it is a, a social you know, reconstruction that is required, but we've done it before. It, it's necessary. It starts with this appreciation and understanding of the fundamental evil that is compulsory education. And uh, the wake-up call you know, is, is basically what I'm trying to promote with the book. It's getting kids to express their dissent. Uh, it's, it's honing. There's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, 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 the violence that takes place in school is often misdirected and unfocused, and I'm trying to turn that, that, those frustrations into something that is nonviolent and something that is focused, where, where the resistance and the, the anger isn't taken out against other students, but is directed toward the parties that are directly oppressing the students and giving them the tools uh, to which they can articulate their uh, frustrations and direct them towards those parties uh, that are oppressing them in ways that really hit home. I mean, it's it's designed to really make adults and all the people who who run the schools fear the power of 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 children that has been nascent prior. 
I'll give you the last word, Kevin. And again, the name of the book is The Student Resistance Handbook, Kevin Soling. He's got a piece out in Wired right now, The Atlantic. Check it out. Check out his movie, too, The War on Kids. I believe it's on Netflix, Kevin. Um, Kevin, when you were a student here at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, at this school, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, did you appreciate the mentorship and expertise of the faculty in helping you, Kevin, the student at this school, learn what you came here to learn? I really enjoyed my time here. I found that the faculty was amazing and was very respectful. Um, I engaged in, in many serious discussions and they were very open to listening and hearing what I had to say and, and treat it with, with, with great respect. Um, I, uh, yeah, you know, I certainly, I, I came here with, you know, there was an appreciation, understanding that there was a contract as far as, you know, I knew what the guidelines of the school were when I applied here, and uh, and there were certain responsibilities that I had to uphold. It wasn't necessary or even appropriate for me to express my opinion in classes where that wasn't the function or, or nature of the class. Um, so, so there was mutual respect there. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel that that was my job or task was to, to push my agenda. It, it was there to, uh, learn as much about, um, the educational system. And I felt that, uh, that my professors were academically honest, um, and, uh, never tried to distort, um, research, um, one of the professors I had who was, you know, one of the most uh, enthusiastic about charter schools and um, uh, conceded that uh, that there were studies showing just how little, uh, when they did the meticulous analysis of, of the contribution of schools to a person's literacy, uh, how, how, how small it, it actually is, how much of that really does come from, from home and, and community and, and things outside of that. Uh, environment. Uh, so I, I thought that was, you know, I, I found I found all the faculty to be very honest that way, and uh, I, I certainly appreciated that. Kevin Soling, always an interesting guest on the Harvard EdCast. Uh, this has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Kevin Soling, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much again for having me.